Hi, a very good morning, everyone. My name is Laurel. I'm a senior research fellow at the Institute of Policy Studies. I'm very delighted for the opportunity this morning to moderate the first panel discussion for today, uh, which will address the different and changing aspirations of Singapore's working population. So we're very fortunate to have with us two very distinguished speakers for this panel. Uh, sitting in the center here, we have Professor Hun Hien Tik. He's the Dean of the School of Economics at the Singapore Management University. Professor Hoon is a macroeconomist who has published widely on international trade and economic growth. In recent years, his research focus has been on how Singapore can grow without being caught in the middle income trap and how a mature economy like Singapore can continue to generate prosperity. Professor Hoon was a member of the Tripartite Committee for Low Wage Workers and Inclusive Growth from 2015 to 2017. And now Professor Hoon is currently a nominated member of parliament. And one of the issues that he's passionate about championing is designing policy to achieve economic inclusion, which he believes is important for social cohesion and political equilibrium. We're also very honored to have with us uh, Mr. Andrew Yeo, Chief Executive Officer of Income Insurance Limited. Uh, under Mr. Yeo's leadership, income has reimagined insurance as a product and service to close protection gaps in Singapore and the region. Mr. Yeo is a veteran in industry. He has held key leadership positions across Asia, including Singapore, Indonesia, Vietnam, and Hong Kong, with other major insurers and uh, financial institutions such as AIA, Mercer, Great Eastern, and Prudential. He believes firmly in shaping insurance to be an instrument that builds future resilience and financial sustainability for all. And he believes in doing that through championing collaboration technology and innovation. Okay, now before we begin, allow me to very quickly go through today's panel format. Uh, we will first begin by getting each of the panelists to take two to three minutes to give some quick reactions to the survey results. Uh, this will be followed by a 15-minute presentation from each speaker. And following the presentations, we will then have a discussion among the panelists and also take questions from the floor. Uh, for reactions to the results, uh, let's start with Mr. Yeo first. So, Mr. Yeo, what did you find most interesting about the results, or what particular points struck you? Good morning, and uh, thanks for having me. Glad to be here. I think was, uh, when I read through the survey, uh, it, ver it validates uh, actually our own findings. Um, three key areas. One is, of course, change is the only constant. And uh, what we found from the survey is that employees are aware and are open, but cautious if they are able to keep up. The second point is about the need to constantly invest in building our workforce to establish resilience, which is actually the key for future-proofing not just work but also businesses. And the third is employers need to be supportive of this change management with their workforce. I guess from the business perspective, all businesses need to be visionary in anticipating the changes that are coming to their business and prepare ahead of time. And this means investing in competency and capability building. And this is not just, in, this is not just about employees' training and skill set development, but also about the infrastructure and processes that will enable the uh, new way of working. But in particular for this survey, I found two aspects of uh, this survey that stoked my interest. Uh, first is really the different motivations of the different age group. And second is the nuance between climate, stroke, environment, and better life for the future generations. So in terms of the different motivations you have seen, as uh, Hani has uh, shared earlier, um, the younger workers value learning, uh, growth, and uh, career advancement. And job security as is last, uh, second last. And uh, for the middle and older workers, job autonomy actually is the most important. Right? All things aside, I mean, the constant aside in terms of pay and conditions and stuff. And I guess, and especially for the uh, the second point, which is actually climate versus better life and uh, versus uh, future generations. I think the gap is very consistent because it matches uh, income's own materiality uh, assessment on uh, sustainability. It also revealed that uh, the public do not consider climate or environmental related actions as priority for us or Stroke Singapore. Mm. Therefore, I think the onus is on governments and businesses to educate and build awareness as we need to reconcile the urgency of the climate agenda right, with, of course, the uh, local and global regulatory pressures, but with companies, uh, matching companies' priorities as well. 
I think they may not be mutually exclusive, but actually complementary between climate as well as a better future. And I think this is also important as we look at capability, capability building as well as uh, green job resourcing, right? especially in our industry or my industry, capability in underwriting, um, financing industries uh, that have strong emissions, etc., etc. I think these are the areas that sort of stoke my interest. Yeah, thank you, Mr. Yeo. Um, actually, that point surprised us as well. I think uh, Dr. Chi was not able to go through the, all those things in detail, but in the findings, as Mr. Yeo mentioned, we asked people to rate um, how important do you, you think it is to achieve environmental goals at work, and then we also asked them how important it is to achieve a sustainability goals in terms of uh, ensuring that uh, you have enough for the future generations. And inevitably, uh, people rated that it was uh, future generation sustainability being higher than climate. And this was a bit surprising to us. But this was the same across age groups, or no matter which way you count it, people in Singapore rated that more highly. So, um, as you mentioned, we need to find some way to reconcile that. Thank you so much, Mr. Yeo. And now, could I please turn to Professor Hoon for your reactions? Yeah, so I think uh, for me, three things probably stand out. The first one is uh, from the first item on how it is that, uh, if I remember it correctly, more than six out of ten rated in terms of their view of social mobility, that they place a, high, a current score that is higher than their childhood score. And that especially for older workers. I mean, in a lot of countries, uh, a lot of unhappiness arises from the fact that I perceive myself to actually not be doing as well as my parents. But here you have, at least in the way this is done, the perception of people that they actually are doing better than what they thought uh, life would be when they were younger. And if you think a little bit about it, the explanation is not too difficult, but it's very affirming. Uh, Singapore is an example of a country that, against all odds, essentially, in the words of founding prime minister, transited from third world to first and did not get stuck in what we call the middle-income trap. And, uh, and, and so that stands out and that's, that's affirming. That, that would be point number one. Uh, point number two, uh, uh, what caught my attention was a little bit about older workers with regard to uh, a mindset for change, uh, more, a little bit more resistant to occupational change. And then that tied in together with uh, I think another item where it was more the younger workers who value learning relative to older workers. Well, that's not surprising, obviously. Uh, when you think about being willing to devote time to accumulate human capital, apart from the, the cost that you're going to incur, there's a cost side of it, you're going to balance it with your perception of the benefits that you get after you do the training. And of course, as you get older, the amount of time over which you enjoy the higher wage because of your training shortens. So it's not a surprise, this finding and, 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 and the finding that as an older worker, I'm somewhat more resistant to occupational change. But at that macro level, that clearly is going to prove a challenge for the country. Uh, if indeed it is the case that we will see more disruptions across industries, and if it is indeed the case that robots will come and take away your job, then you might well find a little a more labor turnover, in which case the need to adjust, the need to be more adaptable to, to, to re-skill and take another new job will be important. So that's probably the second one. Uh, the third one uh, that's striking to me is about the set of slides that contrasted uh, how women if I again remember correctly, uh, had, a state, had a summary that, that said that the women were less likely to pursue career self-management activities, example, self-directed learning networking. Uh, and, and that's interesting to me because that ties in with this phenomenon widely called the gender wage gap or gender pay gap. So it's the notion that on the whole, Comparing a woman and a man at work, on average, taking, say, the median wages, the women are paid somewhat less than men. Mm. 
there are various reasons for that. Uh, it could well be that women choose occupations where on the whole, uh, their occupation pays less. Uh, but, the, but what we saw over, over, over there about less drive to, 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 to say network, uh, it's a factor that could well uh, work uh, in making it a little harder to close the gender wage gap. Thank you so much, Professor Hoon, uh, and I'm sure you will be able to expound more on those points uh, in your presentation. So if, you, if we may invite you to give your presentation. Writing in the 19th century, uh, the British economist Alfred Marshall noted that work confers non-pecuniary or non-monetary rewards. And it's got this lovely uh, quote that I put up there. Uh, a little hard to find a copy of the book, but if you work a little hard, say at NUS Library, you will find a very old copy uh, of elements of economics or industry, and there we have this quote from Alfred Marshall. For the business by which a person earns his livelihood generally fills his thoughts during by far the greater part of those hours in which his mind is at his best. During them, his character is being formed by the way in which he utilizes his faculties in his work by the thoughts and the feelings which he suggests and by his relations to his associates in work and by associates Alfred Marshall had in mind employers and employees. As the organizers of this panel seek to place the aspirations of workers and their search for meaning of work within the context of macroeconomic factors, it is noteworthy that Marshall also noted that the steadiest motive to business work is the desire for the pay, which is the material reward of work. So as uh, noted in the opening address, uh, while uh, we can love our work, obviously it matters to how much we are paid. And Alfred Marshall recognized that. Uh, true work. One earns a wage to support a certain lifestyle and for many, a family as well. Over the long run, a decade, two decades, three decades, what drives the growth of wage earnings, which as we saw from the quote, matter to workers as well, is the growth of total factor productivity. A productivity growth slowdown in the Western economies has an impact on the economies in the rest of the world, including the Singapore economy. So, if you're going to generate steady wage growth, on average, the economy's productivity growth, that's the growth in excess of the growth in input must be steadily growing. In many of the Western economies, that has been about 2% per annum. That's come down to something like half of the 1%. If you are growing at 2% per annum, then you can expect your earnings to double uh, every 35 years. At 1%, it takes 70 years to double your earnings. So how then should we respond if we wish to continue to generate good jobs with good pay in a slower growing world economy. So, having in mind some of the things that were raised uh, in the survey, uh, I would note that first, an effort to raise the skill levels of the workforce is a necessary condition. And here, a pertinent question is who pays? for on-the-job training to acquire general and firm-specific skills. 
so we may get a degree before we start our first job, but really over our working life, we continue to accumulate human capital, and that's on the job training. And that's vital to drive the productivity growth I talk about, and therefore the earnings that you hope to see rise over your working life. Second, a workforce with a diversity of skills produces an eco economy that allocates workers to jobs according to comparative advantage. So a pertinent question here is how to match job preferences to a worker's comparative advantage. Third, for sustainability, as we saw in the survey, people care about living in a sustainable environment, including an environmentally sustainable environment. Uh, job creation, however, will need to take place in a green economy amidst a demographic transition. And I'll talk a little bit more about that. And here, the pertinent question is how to navigate a transition that will involve both creative destruction because of a move toward the green economy, and you're going to have to worry about how to create new job openings. Fourth, workers seeking meaning in their work, I would argue, is related to this aggregate productivity that I mentioned is a central thing in achieving a balance between both our aspirations and the ability of the economy to deliver on your aspirations. So a pertinent question here is how, how to create a working environment that will foster job satisfaction and contribute to a dynamic and innovative economy. So first, who pays for on-the-job training? So you left your, your, your university, got your first degree at your workplace, you expect to continue to accumulate human capital. But who's going to pay for it? Your employers or you, the worker? Uh, let me make a basic point here about the importance of education. A better educated workforce has relative advantage in coping with novel situations. Education, in this view, enables workers to learn new technologies that, might, that they might not have been exposed to before so as a bigger share of the labor force attains tertiary education, the process of learning from others enables each worker to do his work better. This knowledge spillover can serve to hold up the rate of productivity growth. Now, there are two types of skills that can be acquired when one has already entered the workforce. General skills are useful both to a worker's current firm, where you're currently employed, as well as at other firms. Yes, general skill. On the other hand, firm-specific skills are useful only if a worker stays at the current firm. So the question, who should pay for training, is an important question to answer. After a firm has incurred the investment cost of providing general training, and the worker now has acquired a higher level of skill, the other firms also find valuable. The other firms can then offer to pay the worker more without incurring the original cost of training. Anticipating this, no firm would want to pay for their workers' general training. An exception would be if despite the general training, the firm has some degree of monopsony power due to superior information about its current employees so that it is able to beat down the wage to below the workers' value of marginal product. So, so if I send my worker to develop a skill that other firms also will find valuable, uh, why might the firm be willing to sponsor the worker to do so? Well, only if that worker who, 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 who is sending, uh, only if the firm sending the worker for the general training knows something about the worker that the after, other firms do not know. The other firms do not recognize that his productivity actually has gone up. Then I might be able to find a return to sending my workers for, for their general training. Uh, in general, therefore, uh, if we're going to talk about lifelong learning while still on the job, firms would have to resort to offering training contracts that will oblige workers to return to work for the company for a minimum period of time after being trained. 
Let me go on to talk about job preferences and comparative advantage. As standard of living and wealth increase and educational attainments are higher, workers' job preferences shift. So there are job tasks that people willingly perform when they were poor, but would shun when they are richer. An implication of this is that the goods and services produced by performing these job tasks will become relatively more expensive. A mitigating factor here is that if more Singaporeans do not want to do a particular type of job because of the, uh, of the tasks required, now they are wealthier, their parents might have been willing to do, to do that job. They are less willing being wealthier. Then what happens? Then, then the good that is produced by, that, by, by the set of particular tasks would obviously have to rise. That, 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 that service will become more expensive. And, 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 and as a consequence of that, the firm will be able to offer a higher wage. So there's some kind of mitigating factor uh, through the market mechanism as people uh, shun certain types of jobs. Uh, a big challenge that I think the economy going forward that has to, to, to deal with is that we're, we're transiting now from an economy that, centered, that was centered more on manufacturing where a more standardized set of skills were more important. Now we are at a stage where, where innovation becomes more important, less standardized skills uh, uh, are higher in demand, but the ability of the economy to match workers with the right set of skills to this particular job will become extremely important. Um, job creation and job destruction in the green economy. So an obvious thing is that, as in the past, when motor vehicles created new job openings, uh, those engaged in transportation using horse carriages lost their jobs. So something similar will take place as the economy makes a transition towards a green economy. I think the challenge for Singapore is that this effort to move towards the green economy is occurring at a time when we've had many decades now of below replacement total fertility rate. And so as a consequence, the citizen workforce will begin to shrink. An important idea in economic growth theory is to ask the question, where do ideas come from? And the obvious answer is ideas come from people. And if indeed it is the case that ideas come from people, then the fact that the citizen population size will begin to shrink will mean that it becomes harder and harder to find the absolute number of talented people that you need. And so that poses a challenge that the Singapore economy will have to grapple with. Let me end with uh, the last point uh, about job satisfaction and a dynamic and innovative economy. So returning to the quote from Alfred Marshall, a person's self-esteem, for example, tends to be very much tied up with the ability to tackle the challenges that the workplace throws up. So there's a sense of accomplishment that comes from being able to size up a problem and to pull together the available resources to solve the problem. When one's contribution to solving a problem is acknowledged, even if only tacitly, it boosts self-confidence and encourages greater initiative. Work also gives a structure to one's life. Many goals that we set are work-related and these serve to give us a sense of purpose as we begin each new day. When we are absorbed in our work, time flies. On the other hand, there is a certain listlessness that accompanies prolonged joblessness. Many meaningful relationships are also developed at our workplace. This is partly due to the fact that the production process in modern enterprises is a collaborative effort requiring teamwork. As we work along with colleagues to achieve common goals and contribute jointly to problem solving, we develop a social bond and a sense of belonging that are important for emotional health. So when workers across the whole economy find their work meaningful and are ready to think constantly about how to do their work better in novel ways, the result can be higher 
job satisfaction and a boost to aggregate productivity growth. Let me sum up in the last one minute that I have. Uh, so step back a little bit. Uh, we've heard a lot from the survey, appropriately a desire to find meaning in work. Uh, so getting to my last point first, ultimately, how to generate the needed productivity growth, I believe, relies not just on R&D, which of course we must do. It relies also on a continued effort to facilitate the technological transfer from abroad. If there is a latest technique, we better want to adopt it. However, in order to raise this thing called the aggregate productivity level, really people both across the different industries and firms, as well as people from the young to the old, must essentially have this incessant drive, grateful for what our parents did to bring us to the first world and have the great desire to return to the great love to do our work. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Prof. Wu, for the speech, giving us that macro overview. And I find it interesting that you talked about um, training and who should pay for it, because a lot of uh, days, uh, in the two days before this actual uh, physical conference day, we talked a lot about how people need to reskill and upskill. And then the question is, of course, who should be paying for it and who should be driving that training? Thank you. And now, uh, could you invite Mr. Yeo to yeah, give your presentation? Good morning. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, what I'd like to do this morning, uh, I have no slides, uh, but what I'd like to do is just to share our story, the income story about future of work. Today, income hires about 1,800 employees and more than 1,000 financial advisors that are tied to us. Thus, as an employer, I'm very glad that the survey findings reaffirmed three key observations that we have had, that, we have, that I mentioned earlier. Firstly, change is the only constant. It means that the businesses will always have to evolve with their needs, and the workforce must be nimble and adaptable as job changes. Secondly, with uncertainties, reskilling and capability building of employees is key to being future ready. This must be seen as an investment to safeguard our collective long-term growth and sustainability as a workforce company, as well as as a nation. Finally, employers must instill confidence, support, and motivate the workforce to thrive in an ever-changing landscape. While uh, it is easy to make all these observations, driving positive outcomes of future work is a lot more challenging, as we ourselves have found out. Thus, I thought that uh, as uh, my sharing, I'd like to also share key learnings from income's experience in driving the future of work. And I will be very happy to hear your thoughts at the panel discussion later. I think first thing first, what we did was really to define the change and give clarity on the reason for those changes, its benefits and challenges, as well as its expectation on the company and on our staff. As our people create value for our customers and drive impact across the organization, it is imperative that they buy into the change and know well why we do what we do. The future of work is a projection of how work, workers, and the workplace will evolve in the years ahead. Considerations that projections are aimed at driving decisions that enable the organization to thrive today while they prepare for the future. So today, future of work will, is being regarded like a fashionable commodity on its own. I've been asked on several occasions whether income is practicing future of work, and more often than not, it meant to ask if we are on a hybrid working model. And for the record, income practices hybrid working, and while we regard it, uh, we regard it as an enabler rather than the future of work. We foresaw the digitalization wave back in 2016-17 and embarked on digital transformation. It was a milestone decision to ensure that no one takes our lunch. 
and given the rise of e-commerce and tech companies venturing into the financial verticals. And on a side note, what started as a defensive strategy to protect our lunch, now we are enabled, we, that has enabled us to actually create more lunches as we use those innovations to expand beyond Singapore into the Southeast Asian region, having the capability to build partnerships as an insure tech across Indonesia, Vietnam, Thailand, and Malaysia, and soon more geographies to come. Anyway, that's another story for another day. We set up the Digital Transformation Office, or DTO for short, and invested in technology and data to reimagine insurance like a startup to disrupt ourselves before others do. And we started that track on a, rather we started on a duo track. One is really to digitalize our traditional business. We are a long, legacy, long history and a huge book of legacy business, and that needs transforming as well. But on the other side, in protecting our lunch, is really to reimagine insurance in terms of how insurance can be consumed differently, and thereby creating new lunches. So we intentionally positioned the DTO as a symbol of change, as it represented a future where our workforce must be data literate and is comfortable with new tech such as AI and machine learning, and is customer focused and empowered. Through town halls, stories in the press, internal memos, and staff sharing, we purposefully built a ground the groundswell about digitalization, new technologies, innovations, and transformation at income. By communicating and showcasing our initiatives, projects, people, and achievements. And along the way, we won some accolades. I think that helps to actually add more fuel to that journey. By doing this regularly, we extend influence, excitement, meaning, and purpose to the future of work, even to those who are not immediately close to those changes or embarking on new jobs. Next, we build an immersive environment and promote experimental uh, learning to make change less intimidating. This has been critical in exposing our people to new technologies, design thinking, agile ways of working, data literacy, as well as customer centricity. As a company with a rich and long history, we naturally have legacy systems and long-serving staff that may resist or need a little more time to be persuaded to get on board changes. To emphasize the urgency of change, we invited experts in next-generation technologies such as AI and data to share new developments pushing our industry's boundaries and what other insurers are exploring. We also embark on learning journeys to countries like China to really take in in terms of the spirit of change that they have adopted in transforming that nation as well. We introduce mobile and facial access to our offices, as well as mobile apps that enable staff to do their HR admin work, file claims and expenses. Zoe, our AI recruitment chatbot, is now enabling screening of candidates and recruitment of financial consultants more efficiently. Through our annual hackathon, where employees form groups to innovate solutions for real business problems that they are facing, agile cross-divisional teams that collaborate to bring products and services to market faster, as well as our exploration of virtual reality and blockchain technology for business applications. Our employees become more exposed to what future of work is like and can be. Technology and data are fundamental to a company's customer centricity, which is the bedrock of business successes today. Enterprise-wide, it is thus essential to establish and speak a common language around data that empowers customer centricity. What this means is that employees must have a common understanding about the types of data, how they can be managed, organized, processed, and analyzed to inform and provide customer insights and enable business decisions. This calls for a data-driven culture at income and to embed it as a way of working organization-wide. We must be inclusive in honing employees' data-driven skill sets and establishing this common language. Thus, we place all our staff 
at all levels across the organization on a data curriculum starting started in 2021. The curriculum, the curriculum tailors to staff's work requirements according from admin personnel, executives, managers to senior leaders and cuts across different modules that includes data analytics, storytelling and visualization, AI and making data-driven decisions. Our employees are also turn, are trained on design thinking so that we too have a common language and it's inclusive about embedded customer centricity, embedding customer centricity as a way of working at income. We learned from the survey findings earlier that while Singaporeans are open to changes to their work, including their occupation, they are generally worried. And this is only natural as change brings about its uncertainty. Thus, one of the most important learnings we took away was to not only give assurance, but also to instill confidence among staff that they can succeed at income. To do so, we encourage job mobility and provide opportunities for employees to take on new roles. We support staff training based on a 70-30-10 rule, where 70% is on the job training and learning, 30% is peer learning, and 10% is classroom learning. And I would just like to share that you know, while we embarked on encouraging job mobility, within income, we identified about 100 roles that needs to be transformed. And to date, we have only managed to help maybe two to three dozen of our staff right, change their role. So just to share that you know, the, the journey to change is the tough one, but it nevertheless, I think, is a necessary one. And I think that should give encouragement to all of us, including those at income, to continue on this journey and continue to embark and enable our people uh, along this job mobility journey. So in that, we adopt a more holistic talent acquisition approach to ensure that we continue to meet business needs and addressing challenges amidst changing times. While it is important to have the right job and cultural fit, I would like to stress that at Income, we're not just about hiring people from within the industry. Neither are we overly fixated about the course of study or training, with the exception of technical roles like actuary, of course. In the formation of DTO, we brought on board lawyers, bankers, coders, business developers, and many others from non-insurance and non-financial backgrounds to inject vitality and reimagine the world and the way people think about insurance. Thus, an income is not about fitting into a mold, but thriving on diversity of mindsets and perspective that sparks ideas and innovation, which in turn drives progress and growth for all. Personally, as a formal naval architect, yes, I'm not from the insurance world, right, I was a trained naval architect, practicing naval architect, who entered the insurance industry simply because an insurer that hired me had wanted someone from outside the industry and training to bring forth new know-how and skill sets to the firm. So I stand by this belief strongly because I am a living proof. We are mindful that our people our leaders play a critical role in inspiring and supporting change. Thus, through our Future Ready Workforce Program, our managers undergo competency development in leading change, developing people and driving excellence. We also hone their coaching skills to enable them to be more effective people leaders when providing guidance on careers, taking development conversations, instilling confidence and giving assurance to their team. Finally, there's benefit to being purposely focused about evolving with and adapting to future work. Because of the fundamental, uh, fundamentals that we need to put in place, our staff were better placed for change when the pandemic hit and became the single most effective change catalyst that we have ever encountered, so thanks to COVID-19. In short, in the short few months, we witnessed and experienced the fastest technological optimization and adoption rate at income. We also saw better collaboration and teamwork because of the gradual and increased understanding and appreciation of digital transformation. We proved to ourselves that remote working does not impede productivity. We tore down silos, focused on the jobs to be done, and collaborated in ways that were unprecedented. We put in place a future of work task force led by the chief operating officer 
together with the Chief Technology Officer and the Chief People Officer to leapfrog new work processes and improve efficiency and reduce redundancies, as well as to refocus employees on high-value work that create greater job satisfaction for them. Hybrid working is a permanent feature at income, but it is not about the number of days in the office. We are guided by the type of activities and the format that is appropriate. And we have found this to be more empowering while we build trust among employees. That said, despite all the flowery stories that I just told, we are still a work in progress. Because, like I said earlier, change is the only constant. And while we embark on change, it keeps on changing. As work continues to evolve, so are the expectations and career goals of our employees. I always tell my leaders that we need to be transformative and supportive of our people's aspirations. Likewise, we encourage our staff to take charge of their careers and have an open conversation with their managers because I believe that it, this conversation must be two-way. So in closing, for students and employees who are listening in this conference, may I suggest be bold. It is either you lead the change or let the change lead you. Be the change that you want to be. Thank you. Thank you so much, Mr. Yeo. Um, before we jump into the Q&A with the floor, I just want to raise a point that um, Professor Hu made as well. We talked about training uh, general versus specific skills and how it might be difficult uh, for firms to support, uh, to fund uh, general training, training of general skills, but they might be more willing to fund uh, training of uh, uh, firm-specific skills. So um, how, do, how might we overcome this difficulty? Because as we can see from our research earlier as well, um, increasingly as people move from job to job and jump from sector to sector, general skills such as creative thinking or even design thinking become more important. So how do we uh, resolve this dilemma? Uh, maybe Professor Hu, you could take uh, so I think that uh, one can think about uh, the financing or training from three perspectives. Uh, the, the first is from the perspective of government funding. And when one thinks about government funding for training, I think in the Singapore context, uh, one has to think about funding from very young age onward. Uh, to, to the time when one chooses to retire. And the academic justification for any government funding uh, for training, obviously, is that there are what we call positive externalities to the whole economy. Yeah. Meaning by that, that when I myself am trained, I don't myself only benefit from being there for a more productive worker and earn a higher wage, that my own general training benefits many others in society as well. So I, I think that it is possible to rethink the, the way we uh, already provide huge government subsidy for training, especially in, in fact starting from kids who are very young through to the end. I think there is a way to work out, for example, how the university like SMU where I come from as well as the other autonomous universities, to think about how when, when we finally get a graduate, an undergraduate and train, that there are modules that, uh, and maybe the university are doing some of this already, they can continue to take benefit of that, to come back for classes, for example, mm -hmm. just to, to learn new things. Mm -hmm. And then from that perspective, that the government uh, support some form of subsidy uh, continues for the person's learning through life. But then the second thing obviously has got to do with the fact that since especially the widening skill premium suggests that globally uh, the return to human capital accumulation is huge. So that quite a lot of the benefit of say getting a postgraduate degree goes to the individual. Therefore then the individual ought to be able to how he plan, how the individual plans himself over his lifetime to be able to leave the job, go to a graduate school, uh, upskill himself, and then return to the workforce. Mm. Because the technological changes have placed a premium on the skill. Mm. 
And thirdly, obviously, the company, as I suggested in what I was able to say just now, uh, uh, might deal with the issue of another firm poaching my worker after the worker has already uh, received their generous skill without having to pay the cost. And I suppose that it is possible for companies over a longer term to devise a culture where they themselves can see themselves offering to pay, let's say, a part of the fee for doing a postgraduate course. And then you essentially sign a kind of con training contract so that the firm continues to enjoy some of the benefit of having paid for your training after you have already uh, started work. Okay, thank you so much, Professor Hu. Now, for Mr. Yeo, you run a company, so do you, do you see this dilemma? Because I, I hear that, you're, I mean, we heard earlier that you, you, you offer all these exciting courses to your employees, design thinking and familiar, familiarizing them with new technology. So what happens if after you train them, they're all experts and then they, another firm poaches them? So how do you, how do you address this? I think, I think first and foremost, businesses need to, in a way, um, look at the horizon and strategize what is, what is required for their business, right, to future-proof their businesses. Mm -hmm. And look at you know, this, all this capable, capability building as an investment as part of the strategy, in executing, executing that strategy to future-proof their business, mm -hmm. rather than looking at you know, the, the downside of things where after I, after I train the staff and they leave, right? Because the flip side could be more true, that if you don't train them and they stay on, which is more expensive. <laughs> <laughs> right. But I think, I think more importantly is really businesses need to look at you know, what is it that enables their strategy right, rather than look at the, the downside of things. And I think government subsidies are basically the icing on the cake, the additional the nitro that actually adds to the fuel right, to actually boost uh, right. that, that, that journey for you. But you shouldn't get too stuck up, you know, get too stuck with uh, or bothered with whether there's a subsidy or not. Because ultimately, at the end of the day, right, it is about driving your own business strategy and what is required all right, uh, in, in terms of the capability and the competency required. Because for without that, right, your strategy will not get implemented. Your business will not thrive as what you have expected. I think on the other side, it's also for employees to understand that everything needs to be funded. Right, so there is, a, there is a cost to everything. Then what is that return of value right, to not just the organization, but also understanding that as you return value to the organization, you're actually future-proofing your own jobs, future-proofing their work. Because only when each and every one of us think that way, that we, we, whatever we take in, we give back, the, only then the business and companies will thrive, will continue to thrive. And I think back to the, to the companies, while we are concerned, or some may be concerned, about losing uh, well-trained staff, on the flip side, we also gain from recruiting from others right, in the same fold. So I think it's a bit of give and take, and let's not get too you know, bothered about that losses, and rather focus on what is it that you need as a business in executing your strategies. Okay, thank you so much. Um, now we'll open the question to the floor. Um, we will be taking questions uh, in, from the physical conference as well as online. Uh, we'll start with uh, uh, questions uh, in, in, in the venue first. Um, please, uh, for those of you who are interested, please walk up to the uh, mics uh, to ask your questions. And, but first, remember to introduce yourself before asking your questions. And then also, alternatively, you can scan the QR code at the back of your name tag and post your questions on Pigeonhole. So is there anyone uh, right now who would like to ask questions from the floor? Nobody? Nora? Hi, yes, please. Uh, hi, uh, I'm Jason House, a lawyer. I'm from UWC, a school here. And I wanted to know, from the perspective of the IPS survey, from what it founds about um, non-pecuniary benefits of work. What does that tell you about um, how workers might think about these new technologies in the near future, say perhaps when there is the post-scarcity economy or a lot of huge productivity gains in the future means that a lot of work is less necessary? Yes, uh, so um, so your question, if I get it right, is about uh, how to think about finding meaning in your work in the face of potential new technologies 
and, 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 and how to find meaning in all that. So, um, I, I, I think that the nature of the technology that will affect work uh, uh, is such that there will be some technologies that will really substitute for the human effort. Uh, you know, that robot can do exactly what a human does, and so why do you need that human uh, a worker for, for the set of tasks? Uh, and, and, so, and so I think that in thinking about meaning of work, from this perspective, the fact that artificial intelligence, robotization, can substitute for, for human effort means a willingness in thinking about meaning of work to be willing to, to deal with the possible occupational change, a willingness to uh, raise your level uh, to do tasks that the robots cannot quite do. Uh, we know the robots cannot be right now able to do a simple task like going to your, to your table and get your glass and then bring it back to me, for example. So, 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 so I think part of, part of learning uh, uh, and finding meaning of work uh, is to build for yourself the range of, of, of skills uh, that, that, that will be deep. I, I think on the other hand, one must understand that artificial intelligence, robotization, uh, are, are also, ha also have the nature of what I like to call uh, 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 multiplicative robots. Multiplicative robots uh, enable the nurse who cannot carry that the heavy stuff, you know? But uh, uh, with that, with that, with that, with that, with the help of that robot, uh, you, <laughs> you, 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 you can do a lot of things that you could not before. So, so I think the other aspect of 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 therefore thinking about the robot coming to take away your job is that some of those robots can actually become friends. They boost your productivity, and so I think part of it is about. Uh, uh, working in an environment where you're creatively talking with colleagues about, about how to harness the advantages of some of these technologies. I'd like to add on, I think, two aspects. One is on the, um, uh, the employee side or the worker side. I think one principle that we've got to begin to, to accept, right, especially for the so-called older workers, not to be discriminatory, is that business and tech, and tech and business are but one of two sides of the same coin, right? Because I think traditionally we've always been, this is my work, this is tech, tech is not mine, right? But I think going forward, and I think it has already surfaced in front of us, that we got, all got to accept that tech and business or your work and tech are actually closely aligned, right? So there's no separation in that. So I think with that recognition, it hopefully it helps to break that mental block, right, in terms of acquiring new skill sets. Right, unfortunately, with the advance, advance of technology, it has actually, in a way, allowed quite a lot of work that we used to be trained to do, right, to be automated. And automation is nothing new. Right? It's been around for the last 30, 20, 30 years. Right? Uh, back when I was building ships, we can automatically build ships and auto-well and cut and everything, all automatically. Right? So it's nothing new. It's always been around. But technology advances has continued to uh, advance the, the range of automation. But in the last 20, 30 years, right, nobody has lost jobs. Actually, there are more jobs created because actually it frees up people, our workforce and resources to actually look at more higher value work. And that's where I think our people, or rather all of us, needs to be looking at beyond you know, the, the end of our desk in terms of what our immediate horizon is, but what can become. I think that, that, that is definitely a mental block that we need to be shifting. Okay. Um, could I also follow up? Uh, actually, in the interest of time, we're running out of time. So maybe you could, I could give some uh, time to the audience online as well. Uh, uh, okay, one online question and then and to this lady over here. Um, sorry? Question is the online question, the first one. Okay, okay, sure. Yeah, so it's the, the first one that has the... Right. Most votes. So I thought I'd ask it in person because right. there's actually three comments that I thought were quite pertinent to right. add an addendum to what the question was. Okay, yeah, please go ahead then. Uh, hi, good morning. My name is Thea Chen and um, I work in the space of leadership and organizational transformation. I'm a senior 
consultant and coach with Linden Leadership. So the question which um, I asked earlier after hearing the comment about working loudly in that finding from the survey is how might leaders and organizations enable more women in the workforce to work loudly to bridge the gender gap and receive the credit they deserve. And I thought that was a really important comment below that I actually wanted to add, but you can't edit the question on pigeonhole. Um, because I think it's not just about more women working loudly, but also how do organizations and the system um, enable their recognition to be seen. It's not about getting women to do more necessarily, but also enabling organizations and businesses and leaders to um, look beyond maybe just the working loudly element. So I wanted to ask what you thought about that and also what we can do and the, you know, the industry can do to really support this to happen. Maybe Mr. Yu, you might want to take this at your organization. How might you do that? Yeah, um, probably just to share income zone experience. Um, I don't think we have that problem because uh, we have a higher percentage of women in our workforce um, than most other industries. And a lot of our high achievers are actually ladies. Um, I guess more importantly, to your point, and I agree, is about meritocracy, rather about gender. How do we, how do leaders actually enable um, uh, visibility right, of good work and uh, rightful allocation of credits right, to the individuals. Right? And I think you know, basically the infrastructure, or rather, like I mentioned earlier in my speech, I think as part of change and future of work, it's not just about the, the training that you give to your, your people, but also about the infrastructure and processes in which you allow and enable um, such recognition right, to be highlighted and, and to be visible. So just to give an example, for example, uh, at income, um, when, we, when I conduct my weekly um, ex-co meeting, the first thing on the agenda is what are the recognitions that anyone can bring up. So my senior leadership team will be thinking about you know, what are the you know, good things or, or, or commendable uh, actions across the organization that has happened that we would first make a recognition first. Of course, I think more importantly is as leaders, ourselves, we need to proactively, constantly be reminding and asking around right, where are the areas that we have done well. Right? And also purposefully asking our senior leaders, are there um, opportunities where we can actually allow our minus two, minus three right, to be much more visible in displaying uh, their work right, and presenting uh, business cases and, and, and such. Right, so as to thereby giving them more visibility. I think I want to, be, I want to stress that actually more importantly is really about the meritocracy, how we encourage meritocracy rather than be gender specific. Yeah. Okay, maybe I might ask uh, Prof to wrap up the discussion and give your side of the view as well on this. Yeah, I think, so time's running up. So I will just add on to that, that point about gender which gap uh, that I think the one factor behind the gender wage gap has got to do with how traditionally uh, women tend to take a larger role in child rearing and sometimes uh, taking care of elder folks. I think that COVID-19, bad as it is, provided a natural experiment so that everybody was forced to actually find out how things are like uh, when everybody has to work from home. And I think one of the lessons that we have learned is that working life can pretty much still carry on to some degree. Obviously, it differs across industries and so on. So I think that uh, uh, organizationally, uh, public-private firms can harness on that and then, you know, through flexible working hours, through enabling uh, women not to have to leave a job because of child-rearing, but because of the flexibility built in in their work, will be able to continue their work and, and, and perhaps the, the male folks can kind of take advantage of that as well and some collaboration can take place within the household so that you, 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 you take care of a child rearing responsibility, elder care, and both husband and wife can still function reasonably well in the workplace. Okay, thank you so much, Professor Hoon. Well, we've come to the end, sadly, to the end of the panel because time's up. But I just want to uh, summarize by uh, talking about how it really struck me that um, for both speakers, uh, where there are, you know, you, there are times when you look at a situation and it looks like it's a risk. For example, you look at um, how the digital transformation that, that 
that's fought with a lot of uh, risk and threat, but you've taken that and now you've created new lunches at uh, income with that. And also for Profum, talking about how COVID terrible as it was, it forced us to relook the way we work and allow more flexibility. And that helps us to uh, involve uh, more, more women into the, into the workforce as well. Uh, thank you so much, everyone.